Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we ask your presence. We ask, Lord, that you just help us remember that you are present. We don't have to invite you here. You have promised that where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. So, Lord, sensitize us to your presence. Prompt us with a message that's just for us this night, because each of us needs a message that's just right, just for us this night. We pray it in the name of the newborn Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'm on uh, Facebook, been on Facebook for a few years, and, and uh, by virtue of who I am and what I do, I, I have probably 100 pastors across the country that are my Facebook friends, and, and they mock this song, you know, Mary, did they know a little bit. They said, yes, she knew, would you stop singing it, you know, and, and then they quote scripture, you know, that the angel said, you know, he's going to be born, he's going to be the savior of the world, or, or when the, she brought the baby up to uh, the temple, uh, according to the custom, uh, and Simeon took him in his hands and said, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many and for a sign to be opposed. And Mary, your own heart will be troubled by this child. Well, okay, she knew that. But there was so much she didn't know. She didn't know how it was going to be accomplished. No one did. The disciples who walked with him for three years didn't recognize those things until after the resurrection. You only see what you're able to expect. And so I, I think I'm amazed at, at what they didn't know and, and how they too, even though uh, they were caring for this child, had to walk by faith. And God revealed only to them as they needed it revealed to them what they had to deal with. And I think that's true today. There's another song that I like. It's a, a bit different. It's written by a guy named Mark Cohn. Uh, it's called uh, Walking in Memphis. Have you ever heard it? You ever heard this song? It's, it's a little different. But uh, uh, he's a singer-songwriter, and he's in Memphis, and that's kind of like, you know, a holy city for singer-songwriters, just like Nashville. And uh, he goes down, and he's invited up on stage to sing in the chorus of that song, in the lyrics of that song. And uh, he says, Muriel plays piano. You know the song? And, uh, and so he comes up, and he sings, and he just knocks it out of the park, and he's really enjoying the moment. And she says, tell me, son, are you a Christian? And he says, ma'am, I am tonight. You know, and, and I, I think that's true about all of us. You know, whether you're a skeptic or, or whether you're a believer, you know, are you a Christian? Well, ma'am, I am tonight. You know, it's that kind of night when all of America, and it seems like all of the world, you know, loves this story of the birth of Jesus. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, this taxing took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and line of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. These are the facts, you know, the facts of Jesus' birth. That's the detail. That's the narrative. That's the story. So how do you feel about that? What do you know about that? Because... 
unless it means something to you. It's just a story like all the other wonderful Christmas stories that are broadcast to our children during this time and broadcast to us as well. In fact, uh, uh, we came to uh, the service on Friday night to allow for others to come this afternoon. And, And so we were catching up on a Christmas story and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, you know, all the wonderful Christmas stories that come out. And this is just another story like that, like the Grinch, like Rudolph, you know, like the Christmas Carol, like the Wonderful Life, like Frosty or the Miracle on 34th Street. I might even say it's the most interesting and the most tender of all the stories that could be told at this time. But it's just a story, you know, like all of these that you'll find displayed in somebody's yard unless it means something to you. It can be a beautiful story. You know, even if you don't believe in angels, even if you accept that Jesus was a historic person, but, but maybe not the Son of God, and, and he brought a teaching that, that is a moral teaching that we all ought to try to follow, and many people look at him that way. If that's all you believe, you could say it's a wonderful story, and I want to honor it because there's value in it, even though you may be a skeptic. But I noticed something in preaching this series uh, prior to uh, Christmas, this season that we call Advent, when we were uh, talking about the scandals of grace and all the people that were involved in the preparation for the Lord's coming, that it affected them all personally. You know, if you go back, that every one of them, when, when they heard the news, they were affected personally. It, it wasn't just an objective story that they said, oh yeah, I've heard that story, or I knew that story, or thanks for sharing that story. No, Zechariah, it says, was troubled. Mary was confused. Mary pondered. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, cried out with joy. There's emotion involved when these stories are unveiled to them. The shepherds were terrified. Joseph was uh, hurt, confused, and crushed. The wise men rejoiced, fell down, and worshipped. King Herod was troubled, and it says, and all of Jerusalem with him. There's emotion involved with this story. It wasn't just an objective story. It meant something to them, and they all had to respond to it, and we do too, unless it's just a story. How does this account make you feel? Well, that's the narrative account, but there's another account that is found in uh, the Gospel of John, and it's not a narrative. It's not the story of how it came to pass, but a a story of the significance of Jesus coming into the world. And in John chapter 1, it says, the Word became flesh. Think about that. The Bible became flesh. God became flesh. Everything he said, all the promises he made, came in the form of a baby, and he walked among us. And we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him, and he called out, saying, This is the one of whom I have said, The one who comes after me is of a higher rank than I am, for he has existed from all time. For in his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law came through Moses, all the Old Testament. But grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So how do you feel about that? Are you uh, a skeptic? It's okay. It's okay if you don't buy all this, that you're here just because it's a, an American thing to do. It's a great tradition, and it's a story that ought to be honored, and, and there's value in just honoring it, even though you don't believe in angels or maybe don't believe he was the son of God. It's okay. You would not be the first and you would not be the last to be skeptical uh, about the nature of this child. In fact, there's even scripture that commends you for being skeptical. Uh, the Bible says, test the spirits to see if they are of God. And so you shouldn't just take it on somebody's word. You should do your work. If you're a skeptic, a true skeptic, you should do your work. The history of Jesus as a person is without question because even outside of the Bible, he is referenced. In the Roman history that was recorded by Josephus uh, of the Jewish uh, people of Israel, because Rome always had somebody who was educated in the countries that they conquered to write their history, and they recorded it in their history uh, to show how great they were for conquering these other civilized nations. Josephus was the man who wrote the Israelite history for the Romans, and it's recorded in Roman documents. It's not Christian documents. He was not a Christian. He was a Jew. But he was hired by Rome to write the history of Israel. And so he wrote about the Old Testament. He wrote about David. He wrote about other great kings and other great people in the Bible. He wrote about the story of Absalom. There are interesting things uh, in Josephus. But he also wrote about the Apostle Paul, who was a historic person. And he wrote about Jesus. And this is what he said about Jesus in the Roman history, not in the Christian history. He said, at that time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. This was the only reference to Pilate for a while, and some believed it was specious, that maybe it couldn't be reliable. Maybe it was written later by somebody who uh, broke into the annals and, until... Uh, uh, actually, in some of the cities along the Mediterranean Sea, there were, there were uh, unearthed archaeological digs and, and plaques that bore the name of Pontius Pilate. So he was a historic person, too. He was also mentioned here. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them. He doesn't say that he did, but they reported that he had. So this is all recorded objectively from a Roman point of view three days after his crucifixion, and that he was actually alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the Israelite, uh, Israelite prophets had reported wonders, and the tribes of Christians so named after him have not disappeared even until this day. He wrote that 90 years uh, after the death of Jesus. So you need to do your work, and, and you cannot deny his historic personage. But now, was he the Christ? Uh, there's another guy named uh, Alfred Adersheim. He's an interesting guy. Uh, he wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. If you really want to be a scholar about things, uh, you should pick that up. He actually was born in 1825, so prior to America's Civil War. Uh, he was born in Vienna. And uh, he was a Jewish rabbi. He was raised in a prominent Jewish home, and he became a Jewish rabbi. And, and because he wanted to study... Uh, scholarly things, he, he went to Budapest to study, to study uh, at a higher uh, school of learning. And there he met a Christian by the name of Duncan who challenged him to examine the messianic prophecies. 
and see if they did not apply to Jesus. And so this Jewish rabbi who knew the Old Testament better than any Christian could know the Old Testament, he was a scholar in those things, spent seven years studying the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, almost 500 of them, including also uh, 600 other references in rabbinic teachings to what they believed that the Messiah would accomplish. And he became convinced after his study that Jesus had to be the Messiah. Before his death, he wrote, That which I had not known or fully understood through my faith was open to me in untold depths through the teaching of Rabbi Yahshua of Nazareth. And then just before he died, he said, I can say a great many things in favor of Rabbi Yahshua, of his power, his grace, and his love. But the greatest of all that I can say is that he received me. Thus, the faith of the poorest sinner brings the greatest joy to Christ. So do your study. Now, if, if those are too, too ancient for you, you know, to think about Josephus or Edersheim, there is another guy named uh, uh, Lee Strobel, uh, who, who is a contemporary of ours. He's about my age, in fact. And he was an avowed atheist and had worked for 15 years in the Chicago Tribune uh, in the uh, 1970s. Uh, to his consternation, his wife converted and became a Christian, and it so upset him. So uh, his wife started going to uh, uh, Willow Creek Community Church, and he asked his editors if he could do a hatchet job on Willow Creek and on Bill Hybels and on the Christian faith because he was so frustrated with his wife that she was so silly as to believe in Jesus. And, and, and so he did an investigation of all of these things that I've mentioned, plus other evidence, eyewitness evidence, collaborative evidence, historic research, prophecies, fulfillment, uh, the medical uh, teachings of the scripture, uh, everything that could be documented, everything that could be examined, uh, he did. He took his uh, literary skills, his investigative skills from the newspaper to work on Jesus. And out of that came the case for Christ. He himself was converted. And he said to each reader who examines the case for Christ, he says, remain unbiased in your examination of the evidence, I dare you. And in the end, judge the evidence yourself. You alone acting as the lone juror in the case for Christ. So just do the work. It's okay to be skeptical. It's not okay to be skeptical if you're lazy and won't do the work. So just do the work and check it out. You know, I'm glad you're here. I really am. There are other people, who, if, if I say, how does this make you feel? How does this story make you feel? They would say, unworthy. Not skeptical. You know, I'm pretty sure about Jesus. I'm pretty sure about who he is, but he just makes me feel so unworthy. I, I'm sure he's the savior of people that are worthy of being saved, but not so much me. That's why this passage from John is so critically important. From his fullness... God among us, we have all received grace upon grace, undeserved love, acceptance, and forgiveness. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I know a little bit about unworthiness. Now, you look at me and you say, well, you're, you're a pastor, you've been a Christian pastor, for a while, and, and God has blessed your work, so why would you feel unworthy? How could you possibly know what it's like to feel unworthy? 
Well, I was raised by a blue-collar daddy uh, in northern Indiana, uh, uneducated man, uh, uh, kind of a crass guy, unsophisticated. Uh, and and uh, for me to think that I could go into ministry was, was a stretch. You know, uh, dad didn't think much of religious people. He had a personal faith. But if a guy didn't work with his hands, you know, he used to ask me, even when I became a pastor, you know, how is that gig working once a week, you know, on Sunday? You know, that's, that's my dad. That's who he was. And, and so I felt unaccepted, unprepared, unworthy to be a pastor. In, in fact, you know, the, the movie character that I identify with most in all the movies that I've seen, and I love to watch movies, is, is Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. You know, he was raised in kind of a rough environment and yet uh, had this opportunity to do something different and felt unworthy. He was going to throw it all away if others hadn't urged him to overcome his unworthiness. The key is not to measure yourself as worse than somebody else or as good as somebody else or better than someone else. The key is not to measure yourself against anyone else when you feel unworthy. The key is just to admit it. That's right, you are unworthy. <laughs> you know, when I, when I finally admitted that I didn't belong there, in, in fact, it was really hard that first year at the seminary. And in fact, I just, I looked around and these were educated people. These were people typically from educated white-collar homes. And, and, uh, and, and these were uh, from religious homes. And, uh, you know, I, I just finally said, I, okay, I don't belong here. If you don't want me here, Lord, throw me out. And he didn't throw me out. You know, I made Dean's List, in fact, but, uh, but I was kicking and screaming all the way. Just admit that you are unworthy. Don't, don't try to prove that you're just as good as somebody else. You're not. You're totally unworthy when it comes to God. You know, he's perfect. You're not. And there are other people who have stronger faith than you. People have stronger faith than me. Lay people have stronger faith than me. I've learned a lot from lay people, more than I have from all of my professors. Paul understood this. And Paul said about himself, and if Paul could say this about himself, and he was an apostle, highly honored in all of Scripture, he said, here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the very worst. And he, he didn't try to defend that he was worthy of Jesus to save him. He said, he came because I needed him, not because I was worthy of him. For this very reason, he says, I was shown mercy so that people like Steve might accept that God could show mercy to him as well and they would receive eternal life. So if you feel unworthy, it's okay. Just own it. You are unworthy. And that's why Jesus came. He didn't come to save the worthy. He came to save those who know they cannot save themselves. So maybe you're not feeling so unworthy. You know, maybe, maybe you've owned that grace for a while. Maybe you've, maybe you've made peace with that. Maybe you're just confused. You know that Jesus is real. You believe that he's the Savior, and you believe that he's your Savior. But you have no idea what he wants you to do in your life. You're unsure of your place in his story. What would God have me do? Well, here's a word for you. Unless you are prophetically mentioned in the Bible, and I don't know that any of you are, <laughs> I don't believe that God has only one plan for you. And it's your job to figure it out or to risk disappointing your heavenly father. 
See, it's not the what of your life. It's not how you live your life in terms of what you do. It's how you live your life no matter what you do that makes all the difference. I truly believe that I have no greater opportunity to please God than anyone in this room, than a bricklayer, a stay-at-home mom, a CEO, or the guy who changes your tires. I think we are all equally capable of being God-pleasing and making a difference in the world in a way that would honor God. We all have that opportunity. Charles Dickens of Christmas Carol fame uh, wrote about this man called Scrooge. And he was visited by ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And, And the ghost of the future, I think, is the most significant because he takes him to a graveyard and he points at a stone. The stone bears his name, Ebenezer Scrooge. And he's thinking, this is what is going to become of me if I continue down this path. And he says to him, good spirit, your nature intercedes me. It pities me. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows that you have shown me by an altered life. In other words, if if I change my path, will my future also change? And he says, and for the first time, the kind hand trembled. And then he said, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. And I shall not shut out the lesson that they teach. That's a good answer right there. You know, if you're confused about what God would have you do, just say, you know, I will understand that Jesus Christ was born to save sinners, that he was real. That he didn't just come to save the world, but he came to save me. And I will be attentive to the opportunities that present themselves. And as I live my life in the workplace, in my home, in my neighborhood, among my friends, I will reflect that faith to them. And my purpose will become obvious. So how do you react to the story? That's how I began this. Mary pondered. Mary pondered. When, when the angel came, Mary pondered, what does this mean? You know, when she went down, Elizabeth said, when I heard the voice of your greeting, the child in my womb wept, uh, leapt for joy to be in the presence of the mother of my Lord. Mary pondered what that meant. When the shepherds came, she pondered, how could this be? When she went to the temple to dedicate her child as was the custom of the Jews. And Simeon took this baby in her hands and, and thanked God. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen what you have prepared for the whole world. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Mary pondered what he said. And as she knelt below the cross, she pondered what God was doing. It's a good place to be, no matter whether you're a skeptic, no matter where you're humbled and feel unworthy, no matter whether you're confused, just ponder. What does this mean that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? And let me just fast forward 
to that time of the resurrection when it was finally understood by the disciples who exactly Jesus was. That he wasn't just a, a sweet story of a, of a child born in Bethlehem. And, and as they were leaving Jerusalem, two disciples walking away, uh, frustrated that Jesus had been crucified and had not stepped up and, and broken Rome's power and had not assumed the throne of his father David, thinking he had been defeated, Jesus suddenly appeared walking along the road with them. And he began to open the scripture to help them see that the Son of Man must die and become the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world so that he would take our sin upon himself and we would receive his righteousness. And then they said this. They said, didn't our hearts burn within us as we began to understand who he was? You know, that would be an awesome thing if your hearts just burned within you as you came to understand who Christ was and what a difference he makes in your life. No matter what you're facing, God loves you that much to walk out of this room into your life with you for the rest of your days as your Lord, your Savior, grace and truth. Amen.